I invite you to stand with me now. I'm going to read all of Genesis 39. I know it's the whole chapter, but I want you to hear the whole story. We've, we've sung this morning about the great presence of our God and our reliance upon him and that he is faithful and true in our lives. And I want you to see that as I read this in this story of Joseph's life, picking up from where he begins in Egypt and watch the ups and downs, but the ever present God. Starting in verse one. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all, thing, or over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge, he is, he is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie down beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he has left his garment in her hand and he fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have bought, who brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it 
succeed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can know you are with us. Regardless of what circumstances we face in life, regardless of the temptations that may come, regardless of the trials that may endure, your faithful presence is a rock to those who have found salvation in you. Thank you that we stand on that firm foundation today and that because you are our foundation, we will not be moved. Would you help us, God, as we explore this passage this morning, illuminate our eyes, let our hearts be filled, let truth reign in our lives through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wonder if you're old enough to remember the days before GPS, many of us in here are, Going back a little further, even the days before MapQuest, you remember that strange period of the computer age before we had it all on our phones and we were wasting reams of paper printing out maps everywhere? This may come as a surprise to some of the young people in the rooms, but we used to not have any of that and we lived by the Atlas. My family used to drive, I've told stories from this because it's such an integral part of my childhood. We used to drive nearly every summer from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I grew up, uh, to southeastern Colorado, which is not a short drive. And dad never liked to do it the same way twice. We would always go and see different things along the way. What is there to see in West Texas? I don't know, but we had to see it. Um, and different places in Colorado before we would always end up in the same little town in the mountains where we would spend our summer vacation. And I can remember on multiple occasions finding some little backwoods to go to some other place that our family wanted to see, hearing these words, how did we end up here? <laughs> if you took vacations before GPS, you've probably asked that question. How in the world did we end up here? Where are we? Are we even on this map anymore? You have to imagine as you read this story that that's the exact question Joseph is asking. The favored son of the promise, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the second to last son of Jacob, of whom he is doted over and given a cloak of, of royalty of many colors that, that had him stand out amongst his brothers. Uh, dreams from the Lord in chapter 37 where, where God speaks to him and says, you are going to stand tall in the midst of your family and all will bow down to you. Sold into slavery by his jealous brothers to Ishmaelites, his distant kin, taken down to Egypt. And we were left at the end of chapter 37 with that cliffhanger that Joseph's been sold into slavery, into the house of Potiphar. And then we had chapter 38 which did not pay any attention to Joseph at all, but looked at one of his brothers, Judah, and his sinfulness. 
But now we return. Our narrator brings us back to the life of Joseph, having hung this, this suspense in front of us. What's going to happen to this young man? So favored by his father and seemingly, if these dreams are true, by the Lord. Now, I recognize that likely for many, because there are wonderful students of God's word in this room, that you have known this story, many of you, from would seem like birth. You don't remember the first time you heard it. Now, some of you are new to the text and you read this and think, wow, I, I didn't know this happened. You, you were probably aware of Joseph and his coat of many colors because of the Broadway play, but what, what really happens now in, in Joseph's life? And there are these three events that kind of successfully take place in, in the first years, and I imagine this ha- took place at least over months, if not a few years, in, in Joseph's life. But go with me to that first moment, that first day, taken out of that pit and sold to the Ishmaelites by his brother, marched down on a slave way to Egypt, sl- sold into a powerful man's household, sleeping in a servant's quarter. Go to that first night and imagine what Joseph must have been asking. Surely the question, how did I end up here? Dominated his mind. What happened to my coat? What happened to my favor? What happened to the visions of God? And here's what we are going to see that this text is going to teach us both about the Lord and about Joseph, that the Lord is ever present in Joseph's life. And that while Joseph could have made many different decisions along the way, Joseph demonstrates to us through the text, perfect obedience to the Lord. Now, when I introduced this fourth series in Genesis, I told you where our focus turns towards Joseph and we're never really shown Joseph doing anything wrong. Not that Joseph was sinless, but we get this vision of righteous obedience before the Lord in his presence. That's what we see from Joseph today as he overcomes in Egypt. We're going to see Joseph overcome in three different things. The first is overcoming difficult circumstances. Now, we're reminded in verse 1 that Joseph is sold to Potiphar. We were already told that at the end of verse 37, and we're reminded that again. Potiphar was the captain of the guard, the first verse tells us. An, An Egyptian, this is a powerful man. This was a man that had direct access to the Pharaoh. And by the way, when this is happening in history, Egypt wasn't this small little backwoods near Eastern place. This is at the height of power in Egypt. This is during that period of time where the Egyptian empire could do very little wrong. They were the most powerful empire in that part of the world. Maybe the entire world at this point. And here Joseph finds himself. Now in our study in Genesis, we've seen anytime someone goes down to Egypt, and we're told here that Joseph has gone, he was brought down to Egypt, right? And down to Egypt has never been a good thing. 
uh, Abraham goes down to Jesus, Moses writes and tells us, uh, because he fears for his life and famine, and so he seeks to take care of himself, and trouble ensues. The next generation, Isaac, is warned not to go down to Egypt by the Lord during the next famine that takes place in the land. Down to Egypt always represents opposition and struggle and turmoil and strife. And Joseph didn't choose to go down to Egypt. Joseph is, we're told in the text, brought down to Egypt. We're told twice, we're reminded of this. He was brought down to Egypt. He was brought, he was bought by him, by the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. Joseph had never known a place like Egypt. Remember, he was born right as his father, right after he was born is when his father packed up his family and left Mesopotamia to return to the promised land. Now, he grows up in Canaan, surrounded by people who worshiped false gods, but in a household doted on and protected by a father who had, at the beginning of Joseph's life, in his infancy, instructed his family to put away their false gods. So Joseph's sheltered life had been in a household that had one God, and now Joseph finds himself at the epicenter of false god worship. He's, he's in Egypt where every morning at sunrise, the people would gather and chant to wake up their gods. Their gods would be ritually bathed every morning and cleansed. It was even thought that Pharaoh himself was a god in their presence. This is a foreign land where he is now a slave, no longer a favored son. How in the world did I get here? If we just read that first verse and you're unfamiliar with this passage, you you may think that Joseph is going to be bitter or angry or seek revenge or turn in on himself in self pity and despair. All of that would seem legitimate to our minds. This, This young man, 17 years old, who has known privilege, is now in a foreign land as a slave. Who could blame him if he is angry, even angry at God? Who could blame him if he is, sinks into the depths of despair because of life's circumstances? These are certainly greatly difficult circumstances, probably more difficult than any of us have ever experienced, maybe more than any of us will ever experience. And I say that recognizing that there have been Many in this room who have faced greatly difficult circumstances, but none of us have been sold into slavery in Egypt, a foreign land. But how, what are we told in the text? The text quickly turns and tells us that the Lord is with Joseph in person and in all that he does. Look at verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now, what you may miss as you read your text, let me just help you with how you read your Bible for a moment. When you're reading in the Old Testament and you see the word God or Lord and it's written normally, it's, it's using, uh, it's translated from various Hebrew 
uh, words that mean those things. God, Lord, sometimes very often kind of the impersonal, like we could say God and it'd be lowercase g in English, right? But then there are times when you'll see it in your Bible written as Lord and it's all capital. That's our English translators giving us a clue as to what Hebrew word is actually being translated there. And here, the, the, what's happening four times in this, in the, sorry, three times in these two verses is the word Lord is being translated from the Hebrew word, which was the personal name of God. We'll sometimes pronounce this in English as Yahweh, even though the actual pronunciation of it has been lost to history because for centuries, the Jewish people would not pronounce this word. So we don't actually know what vowels go with it. But it's interesting to note that starting here in the story of, Je- of Joseph that took place starting in, in Genesis 37, all the way to Genesis 50, there's only one other occasion where that name is used for God. Every other time God is referenced, it's, it's El or Elohim. It's one of the more general terms for God. It's here alone that the narrator in the story of Joseph uses the personal name for God. The narrator never uses again, it's only Jacob, all the way in chapter 49 when he's pronouncing kind of blessing and curses over his sons that on one occasion uses this term. But here it occurs seven times in Genesis 39. Four of them, twice here and twice again at the end, it appears in this form. The Lord was with Joseph, God. And not just some impersonal God, but the Lord God, the one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord was with Joseph. Why does it show up in this this sense seven times in this one story? Four, just to tell us that the Lord was with Joseph. Because that's the point. The point of this passage and what the author is screaming to us by using this word over and over, this personal name for God, he's screaming to us that God is with Joseph. Don't miss it. Don't don't look at the things that Joseph does as the point of the story. As always in Genesis, look at what God is doing. And what God is doing is here in this most devastating and uncertain time in Joseph's life, the Lord, more than anywhere else in the text, is with him. God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the preceding passages that I will be with you. But do you notice the change? It's no longer I will be with you as a promise. It is a simple statement of fact by our narrator. The Lord was with Joseph. He was with him. And because he was with him, he established success by his hands. His Egyptian masters see this. And so there's there's great blessing that come with this. So what does, this, what does this mean for us as we read this and when we think about the fact that the Lord is with Joseph, we wonder this question, is the Lord with me? Is this something I should desire? Should I desire that this also be said of me? That if, if someone were writing the story of my life, that over and over again, they would repeat the, the phrase, the Lord was with him. Yes. This is actually a prayer we find in the Psalms. 
In Psalm 90, verse 17, it says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You know, it's the, the point of, that's the, the end of that Psalm. And the point of that Psalm is not the work of our hands. The point is that God be upon us. Our focus should be on the presence of the Lord in all of life's circumstances and let him establish the outcome. It doesn't matter what the work is, as long as it's obedient. As long as what we're doing is recognizing that it's God working in us, it does not matter what you do in this life, as long as what you're doing is godly, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not as if some professions and some vocations and some places to live are better than others. This text should just as easily preach in the United States in, a, in, in what seemingly is a wealthy society, a well-to-do, well-off place as it would in the second and third world. We should be able to see that God's presence is with all believers and that our desire should be to just live in obedience to that presence in his life. And as long as what is set before us is work that honors God, then the work is irrelevant. It didn't matter if Joseph was working for his father in Canaan or if he was working for Potiphar in his house. Later, we're going to see him working in the prison, as we've already read. The work is irrelevant. The focus is on the Lord. And then... Because of the presence of the Lord, Joseph finds favor with Potiphar because of the Lord's blessing. Pick up in verse four. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attending him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From, that, from the time that he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Let's just start at the end here. Joseph has made Potiphar's life so easy that he has not a care in the world. That's what that last line means. When it says that all that he, that his only concern was about the food that he ate, that, that is the epitome of ease, right? What's my next meal? And he didn't even have to cook it, right? Joseph oversaw the people that, that earned it and killed it and cooked it and brought it to him. Because of the favor of the Lord and the presence of the Lord in Joseph's life, God has exalted him in this household. Joseph finds favor in this foreigner's household because of the presence of the Lord. It is this favor that continues the story of God's redemptive plan. Again, remember, God is the primary actor here. He's the one working and he's telling this big story. It's a story much bigger than Genesis 39. And so what, what needs to happen in Joseph's life is favor not only with God, which he already has because he's living obediently to God, but favor with man. Joseph needs to excel, and so the Lord makes it so. Now, this isn't a promise of personal promotion or great earthly success in every one of our lives. Don't read this text and say, okay, as long as I focus on the presence of God in my life, then what God's going to do is exactly what he did with Joseph, and I'm gonna get the next promotion, and I'm gonna get the next raise, and I'm gonna get the next opportunity. Look, God's telling a story here of redemption. And in that story of redemption, what needed to happen according to the province of God is Joseph needed to be exalted. 
And that's what God does. He exalts Joseph here. It's not necessarily a correlation to what God's going to do in your life from a temporal perspective. It is from an eternal perspective, though. You see, if we refocus our way of thinking from thinking that success is defined as the way the world defines success to defining success as the way God defines success, which, by the way, is Christ-likeness, that if that becomes our Uh, the way that we think of success, if that becomes our focus, then the presence of God and our obedience to it does contribute to success far more than anything that could happen in this temporal life. So then we have to ask this question, how how do we overcome difficult or uncircumcised circumstances? How do I take what is happening to Joseph, and this is a little bit of application, I normally save this all to the end, but a little bit of application for us. As many of you know, I spent a long time in student ministry, almost an entire generation of teenagers grow up. and um, Probably the most recommended book that I have ever had, I give this book away all the time, I have copies of it in my office. If you need one today, I'll give you one. Um, Because this, this book comes out of a question that I got so often in student ministry and still get very often today. And it's from young people that ask this question, what in the world am I supposed to do with my life? Like, how do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know what direction I'm supposed to go? How do I know? And, and they'll, they'll start talking about life circumstances. And sometimes it sounds like they're in Egypt. Now, a lot of times it doesn't, but sometimes it does. It's like, how do I do? So, so we need to look at obedience to God, not just from a when I'm in Egypt perspective, but how do I overcome regardless? How do I live as someone who is living obediently in the presence of God, whether I'm in the promised land or I'm in Egypt? And so this book was written by, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. It's a short little book. It's called Just Do Something, which I think is the greatest title ever for a book. And I want to read you a quote from this book. This is what Kevin DeYoung writes. He said, simply put, God's will is your growth in Christ's likeness. Remember, that's the outcome we're looking for. God promises to work all things together for our good that we might be comforted, to, uh, conformed to the image of his son. And the degree to which this sounds like a lame promise is the degree to which we prefer the stones and scorpions of this world to be true bread from heaven. God never assures us health, success, or ease, but he promises us something even better. He promises to make us loving, pure, and humble like Christ. In short, God will, God's will is that you and I get happy and holy in Jesus. Then he gives us advice. Listen to me, young people, and maybe even older folks that are asking some of these questions. So, go marry someone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. Go get a job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. But put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, you will be in God's will. So just go out and do something. The best example we get from Joseph at the beginning of this story is this. Joseph didn't waller on the floor of the slave quarters in Potiphar's house. He got up and did something. Every one of us is in different circumstances in life right now. But if you're a follower of Jesus, God has promised that he will be with you. So what do you do in the midst of these circumstances? 
something. <laughs> Do something. Obedient to him. Seeking to please God. And if you're living in obedience to him, whatever it is you do will obviously be the will of God because he's, you're doing it. And nothing thwarts the will of God. So this is a lot simpler than we make it out to be so often. How do we overcome circumstances like being down in Egypt? We recognize the presence of God and we go about our lives doing something. Number two, overcoming persistent temptation. Potiphar's wife persists in tempting Joseph. We're, we transition here in verse six with the word now. Do you notice that now means some time has passed and, and we're on to a new story. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, we're told. And after a time, his master's wife ca cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now we're gonna look at Joseph's response in a moment, but skip down to verse 10. And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. So we see this persistence on the part of Potiphar's wife to tempt this young man. We're told that he's handsome in form and appearance that Joseph has grown now into a young man, sometime at least has passed. He's grown into this young man. He's pleasing to the eyes. And it obviously seems like everything this dude touches turns to gold. And Potiphar's wife seeks to have a part of that. And so she becomes a persistent. And that's why I wanted you to see verses six and seven and also 10 through 12. She becomes this persistence in his life. This wasn't a one-time event. This wasn't something that just happened, uh, you know, once and he corrected her and she was like, oh yeah, you're right. I'll go on about my business. No, this was a regular occurrence. Temptation has a way of being persistent. It shows back up at what is often the most inopportune times for us when our defenses are down. And often what the enemy will use temptation is it'll just wear us down. To the first time Joseph said no, it, you know, no, but then the more persistent and the more he weighs, wait a second, what's gonna happen if I continue to say no? This woman has, you know, she's the one thing that, that my master's kept from me. What kind of control does she have? You can imagine he starts weighing these things as we so often do because that's how persistent temptation is from the enemy in our lives. But Joseph resists it and ultimately flees from it. I'll back up into verses eight and nine. In between the, that persistence of the temptation from Potiphar's wife, we're told he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now just stop there for a moment. This is his first refusal. We can imagine in the, in the story, the way it's being told to us, that he actually makes this refusal several times. I think we're kind of given that picture here, that this is a regular answer from Joseph, a continual refusing, a continual reminder of the place that he has risen in, in this uh, household and how the one thing kept from him is the master's wife. And, and, and ultimately... We end at the end of verse nine. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
we get a picture into Joseph's heart that Joseph isn't just concerned about, wait, if I take this temptation, what's my master going to do to me? Ultimately, Joseph's concern was this is sin. He recognized sin for what it was and called it what it is. One of the greatest obstacles to our own resistance of temptation is that very point that we're not willing to actually call sin, sin. That we're willing to justify our actions in some twisted way that makes us feel better about it. And Joseph had the opportunity to do this. He could have taken this as a command from his master's wife. He is still a slave in this household. He could have said, okay, well, you're in charge of me. If this is what you're telling me to do, I'll do it. Joseph could have justified his actions in that way, but they wouldn't have been right to do so because this is wickedness and sin against God. And he sees that and he calls it sin. Then she pushes again, right? And this time she puts her hand on. This time they're alone. This time it's, it's, it's now do or die for Joseph. And what happens at the end of verse 12? He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. I said one of our greatest obstacles to resisting temptation is calling sin, sin. You know what the other obstacle is for the other greatest obstacle we have? Joseph's such a great example. The other greatest obstacle we have is we won't just remove ourselves from the situation. We think we are far more capable of battling sin head on, face to face, and allowing it to kind of linger in our, in our atmosphere than we truly are. So what does Joseph ultimately do? Joseph runs. He runs, leaving his cloak behind, right? Leaving his garment behind. This is his outer garment. She's grabbed a hold of it. The best thing he can do is take that thing off and run. And that's what Joseph does. And this is what we're instructed to do in the scriptures. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells young man Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, he's just listed a bunch of sinful things. He says, but oh, for you, as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Listen, it's, it's not wrong to run. It's not wrong to admit your temptation. It's not wrong to admit your failures. It's not, it's not wrong to admit your weakness. It's actually a good thing. It's a good thing to remove ourselves from an environment that is going to be tempting. And here, here's the rub for me, that we are so good at communicating that to our children and protect, or hopefully we are, protecting them from that. We want to do that. We want to tell them, oh, don't put yourself in that situation. Don't put yourself into that temptation. Let me help you with that. Let me remove that from you. But we're terrible at doing it for ourselves. We're terrible at looking at ourselves and saying, okay, how am I allowing cinder to linger in my atmosphere to the point that I'm ultimately going to give into it? Well, how do we flee? Paul tells us there, we pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So we're not just running away from something, we're running to something. When we put off sin, we put on Christ. That's the work of sanctification in our lives. We, we run towards the presence of the Lord as we flee from sin. Number three, overcoming immense persecution. Out of this, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph. We see in verse 13, as, as, and as soon as 
She saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house. She called to the men of the household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by, by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. She tells a lie. She lies. Saves her face. It, it's a bit of revenge. It, it, you know, kills two birds with one stone for Potiphar's wife. And she goes to her husband and kind of, you can kind of imagine this, right? It says that she laid the garment beside her kind of all day, kind of laying there in her distress, you know, and, and in comes Potiphar. What's wrong? Here's what's wrong. And now she, he's been lied about. Have you ever, has anybody ever told an untrue thing about you? They have, haven't they? Well, you're in good company because that's exactly what Potiphar's wife does to Joseph. He's been falsely accused. Now, we've built up all of the success in Potiphar's house due to the presence of God's life in Joseph. So what's Potiphar's decision going to be? Well, not the one you would hope. And Joseph ultimately suffers the consequences of persecution. As soon as his master heard this, verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words of his wife, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Notice that the presence of the Lord didn't deter persecution. He didn't, he didn't stay on top. He didn't stay. As one commentator wrote, as I was reading this week, he didn't stay in the penthouse. He got demoted to the prison. This is where the false prosperity gospel so often gets it wrong. This, this pervasive false gospel in our world today that tells people that the presence of God is gonna bring you to the penthouse and as long as you operate in enough faith in the penthouse, you'll never leave it unless it's to get a bigger penthouse. Look, Joseph, according to the narrative, the way this story's been told, is completely righteous in all of his actions. And yet he goes from the penthouse to the prison. So don't think for a minute that the presence of God in your life is going to make every step in front of you easy. Don't think for a minute that you're not gonna go to the, from the promised land to Egypt or from the penthouse to the prison. Persecution will come. It's actually promised. Again, Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 promises that he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, persecution looks different from one age to the next, from one place to the next. I often hear pastors say, American Christians don't know what it means to be persecuted. I have been amongst persecuted Christians in multiple countries around the world, and I will say this to be true, that there are Christians around our world today facing much more difficult persecution than we are. But I think it is selling the whole broad spectrum of persecution short to not think that we too can't be persecuted. It may just look different. And what's coming may be as bad as what some of our brothers and sisters around the world are today facing, that Joseph faced being removed from this high position of authority and respect down to the king's prison. You gotta imagine the king's prison was where the worst of the worst was kept. These were the enemies of Pharaoh himself. But the Lord is with Joseph and blesses him as he suffers in the face of persecution. So that same, 
That same statement of fact that we saw at the beginning of the chapter is repeated here twice at the end. But the Lord was with Joseph and so showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keepers of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord was with him. All the way up here at the head of Potiphar's house and all the way down here in the worst prison in Egypt, the Lord is with Joseph. And the presence of the Lord becomes the answer to everything in this story. It becomes the answer to difficult circumstances. It becomes the answer to uh, temptation and it becomes the answer to persecution. Rely on the Lord. When I think about Joseph's time in prison, I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote in the 23rd Psalm. So familiar to us, that middle passage says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Think of the promise of God's presence. It's just as real in Joseph's life, regardless of circumstance, regardless of temptation, regardless of persecution. The Lord's presence is real, whether he's on the mountaintop or in the valley of the shadow of death. There is nothing to fear in this life because God is with us. So what? Through Christ, who has promised to always be with us, we are equipped to overcome every trial and temptation. The mission of God's church was laid out at the end of Jesus' time here on earth. We told us to go and make disciples. We have it up here on our wall. He later promises in the next verse, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just as the Lord was with Joseph, he has promised us to be with us. And this is both a promise as it was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a statement of unmovable fact as it was in Joseph's life. Hear me, Christian. If you are in Christ, he is with you. No matter what you face in this life, he is with you. No matter what's going on right now, he is with you. No matter what's on the horizon, he is with you. And so because of that, whatever trial or temptation you face, whatever the, whatever's happening right now in your life and whatever that next step is going to bring, presence of the Lord is with you and you can face it. You know, in the New Testament Greek, which is what language the New Testament is written in, the words trial and temptation translated in our Bibles are actually always the same word. They only had one word. The New Testament authors had one word, whether they were talking about trial or they were talking about temptation. We talk about those as those are two like really different things, but they never did. They talked about it like it was one thing. And our English Bibles tend to um, tend to attempt to, by context, give us the best English word so we can understand it. But ultimately, it's the same thing. They're interchangeable. And so in James 1, when we read, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, we can read trials or temptations, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and stead, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James writes more and then he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
Trials and temptations strengthen our faith because they force us to rely on that presence of the Lord in it. It forces us to recognize, I've got to be with God. It would have been easy for Joseph to have risen to such a prominent place and stopped relying on the presence of God. But if he had done that, it's very likely he would have given in to that temptation and still ended up in prison. Joseph was able to walk with the Lord because he recognized the presence of the Lord in his life and how the relying on the presence of the Lord sanctifies him towards obedience. Now, quickly, I know I'm out of time. You may say, wait, preacher, you just don't know. You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what I'm going through. If you could only know how difficult things are right now, if you could only know what, what it is that we're, if you could see the bills piled up, if you could see the phone calls we're getting, if you, if you could see, there just seems to be no hope. There seems to be no, there seems to be no, what do I do? If you could say, if you just knew how I was wired, if you just knew how strong these temptations are in my life, if, if you felt the kind of pressure that I feel to, to live in sin, then, then you wouldn't view them as James does as something that we should count as joy. Well, let me, let me help you. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says this, no temptation, that's again that same word, trial temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now stop there for a second because some of you need to hear this. It's gonna be tough love. Your circumstances aren't unique. They may be terrible, it may, be, it may be the weight on your shoulders right now may be immense, but you're not the only one to ever go through it. Stop thinking you are. Now, it's not to say it's not bad. It's just to say somebody else has gone through it too. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now, listen, God is faithful. Read it like this. God is present, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But, when, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Lord's presence is all you need to endure both trial and temptation. You ever heard people say, maybe even preachers say, you know, the Lord will never give you more than you can stand. That is hogwash. That's the best word I could think. Without, it's not true. Let me tell you what is true. The Lord will never give you more than he can stand through you. That his presence can stand up under the weight of. So there is nothing on your shoulders today that Jesus' presence in your life can't stand up under and lift you up through and allow you to endure it so you become more like Jesus. And remember, Jesus is the goal, not the penthouse. Jesus is the goal, not the authority. Jesus is the goal and his presence in our lives. And it is through that that we overcome. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that through your presence we overcome. Oh God, help us. Because life seems so difficult at times. Our temptations seem so pervasive at times even the persecution has a way of wearing us down. Remind us of your ever presence in our lives and that through that presence, you overcome through us so that we can stand up under it. We thank you. We worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.